And being a leader that is able to gather the team and get to hear from 100% of the voices, not from the majority, not from 99%, but from 100% and making sure that every voice is heard and is valued, that's really what leads to inclusion. And I think this is the second big pillar that I'm seeing in leadership is how to have these teams that are much more diverse, but also inclusive. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are the sum of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Today, I have the rare privilege of having a conversation with a, a wonderful friend and global citizen who is passionate about cultures, language, diversity, and inclusion. Having lived in nine countries and speaking six languages, including Mandarin, she has a wealth of corporate experience in retail and B2B businesses from around the globe. She has a master's in international business and marketing from the Complutense University of Madrid, a bachelor's in international business and economic law from the University of Salamanca. And she brings 18 years of corporate experience in leadership roles, managing and developing large teams for world-class companies like Apple and Esther Lauder. I'm honored to introduce to you a humble, vibrant and human-centric leader who founded Sea Line Asia, a freight forwarding company, has her own publication, Smiling World, is a speaker on people and culture, a triathlete in her spare time, and a beautiful mother of two daughters, Veronica Lorca. Veronica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Craig. What an introduction. I feel really, really humble, and it's really my pleasure to be here with you today and with our audience. Ah, yes. And it's always good to see your your wonderful smile. And unfortunately, the listeners will only be hearing this, but I'm sure you'll feel it through her voice as well. But we met back in the 2000s in when we were both living in Asia. Obviously, you're there now when I was living in Asia as well through triathlon. So it's so it's so nice to be really reconnecting with you over the past few months. Absolutely. And I think uh, the triathlon is always something that has brought us together. And I think it's something that we both bring to the way that uh, we lead our business, but also to the way that we live our life. So I think that's a common denominator that we have. <laughs> yes, we, we certainly do have some uh, resilience and I suppose discipline that we bring to our lives, which is uh, fantastic. And now you've like I, I know you from kind of your work and, and obviously being in triathlon but I don't know too much about your childhood so what was 
life like for you as a child? Where did you grow up and, and what was life? Yeah, what was life like? So I think life for me growing up was very different than for most people. And what I mean by this is that uh, when you ask me, where do you come from? I get super uncomfortable because I don't know how to answer that question. And the reason why is I was born in a small island in the Canary Islands in Spain. I barely remember anything of those days because when I was five, we moved to France. So I went to a public school. I didn't speak the language at the time. So I had to become one more kid in a, in a French school. And then after five or six years in France, we moved to Brazil. Same story, Brazil speak Portuguese. I didn't speak Portuguese. So I was again, you know, the odd kid, the one who had to, to fit in somewhere. And when I finally did fit in, we moved once again to the Netherlands. And so when I look back at those days, it's almost like I had different personas uh, growing up, depending on what country I was. And what's beautiful to kind of look back is that um, this really shaped up who, uh, who I am today. And uh, a fun story on my wedding day, uh, I had uh, eight bridesmaids and each one of them was from a different country. <laughs> so it really reflects my childhood, I would say. There's definitely some cultural diversity there, which is um, when you have all your bridesmaids from each country you've lived in. I think that's uh, wonderful. I love that. Um, I love that way of bringing everyone together and, you know, kind of celebrating who you are, which is wonderful. And now I look, you know, you talk about you've got two beautiful young girls and you get to travel around the world with them now as well. They've lived in a couple of different countries. How were they experiencing the world compared to, say, what you did as a child? I think for them, they're experiencing a world that is much more connected than uh, than it was for me. And to give you a very specific example, I said that when I was five or six, I went to this uh, French school in a in uh, in the south of france and i felt really different because i was the only spanish kid uh, in the class and i looked a bit darker <laughs> i have mediterranean skin for those who can't <laughs> who can't see and so i felt different for my daughters because the world is much more interconnected even though we now live in hong kong today was their third day at school and they don't feel different because in their class there's a girl from japan there are some boys from korea there are some people from france and what i think is beautiful is that they don't see this world as different people and different countries and what is even more beautiful is that they have already lived in three countries spain hong kong and australia even though they are four and five and when you ask them which one you prefer which i did they say we love the three and they said but actually i love it when we are together kind of it oh. doesn't matter where where we are uh so they see the beauty of, of the world they don't really understand countries or different people they just see it as, as one and i think that's the beauty yeah i think that's so important uh, i know when people grow up in one country they can get a bit isolated and they kind of see the world through just a small lens and so it's so nice that your children get to experience living in different countries and for them they're just human beings and like i feel the same as well when you know i travel to different countries i'm Yes, I'm curious about way the way they live life, but I don't see people as being as being from a different planet, so to speak. They're just human beings who have a, a different way of doing things, which is quite fun as well. Now, you know, you're growing up in these different countries. So when you're into kind of your teen years, did you have someone that, even though you're traveling still quite a lot, that was a, a big role model who helped shape who you are in this world today? It was really my parents. I think um, 
I'd like to uh, answer this question really talking about my father. Uh, he um he passed away many years ago, but uh, he always shaped up who I was from a very, very young age. He told me how to play chess and um, he never let me win if I won, even if I was seven. It was by pure virtue because he said it's more important to teach you how to lose than it is to teach you how to win. So, so that was a beautiful lesson. And another thing that really shaped up who, who I am today is um, he used to say that uh, where the day that he would pass away, he wouldn't leave a big inheritance <clears throat> for me. And he said, but what I would leave for you is languages and a degree so that you never need anyone to find your way and to find a job. And that always stayed with me. So it's something that uh, I, I take with me and and yes, I carry forever. And, and so based on that, are you taking the same philosophy with your daughters and you know, what languages do they speak now? Yes, I, I think that's a beautiful philosophy because it also reflects that you don't take things for granted and you have to work hard to earn, to have the lifestyle that you want. So that philosophy is definitely something that uh, I am paying forward and, and passing on to them. In terms of the languages that they speak, uh, I speak only Spanish to them because it's my native language and my husband, who is Australian, speaks English. And now we are in Hong Kong and I'm passionate, super passionate about languages, especially Chinese. And the thing is, for me, it took me, it takes me so much effort to learn Chinese. I still learn Chinese after 20 years living here and I don't want them to go through the same hustle that I am going through. So I would like for them to study it as uh, kids so that it's much easier and it's much more uh, fluent uh, from a young age. Wonderful, because it, it's similar to Julie and my approach. Um, so for those who are listening in here, the, I had a baby girl. Well, Julie and I had a baby girl, Aroha, six days ago uh, at the time of recording here. And something that she has been passionate about is ensuring she speaks uh, Mandarin to her. And obviously, I speak English to her. And then I throw in a bit of Maori language as well, just to uh, keep her on her toes. Um, so I think, I think it's great, you know, they're such a sponge at a young age and having that ability to speak multiple languages just opens more doors and allows you to, to be able to see other parts of the world, which I think is great, which is really good. And, you know, you've done a lot of work here in kind of the brand marketing retail space over the years, but what was your first job and how did it come about? Okay, my first job is an interesting one. So to give a little bit of a backstory or origin story, I had just finished my master's degree in Spain. So I'm talking about 2002. So that's going to tell my age, unfortunately. And uh, the situation in Spain, like the working environment was terrible. Like your best shot was to work for free at one of the big fours and be proud of it. And I was like, oh my God, I can't do this. And so I applied for this internship for the Spanish government to work for the Spanish government overseas. So in a trade commission that is kind of the commercial branch of the consulate. So you had to go through all these different exams, language exams, culture, uh, logic, a lot of different things. And uh, based on your results, you got to choose where you would go in the world. 
and you got paid. So I thought that that was an amazing opportunity. So I went for the exam. I went through all the different phases and I ranked pretty high uh, in the end. So when I went to the interview, I was pretty confident that they would uh, uh, give me the assignment to the place that I wanted to go to. So the place that I had chosen was Sydney. And when I got into the interview and they looked at my CV and they looked at the languages and so on, they said, what are you going to do in Sydney? Like, you can't go there for holidays and for surfing. We're going to send you to Shanghai, to China. So <laughs> this was 2003. For context, I knew no one who had ever been to China. I did not have a point of reference. There was no Google. There was nothing for me to understand where I was going. And uh, so I left with the mixed feelings of saying, wow, my life is going to change radically. I'm going to somewhere that I haven't chosen and I'm going with one-way ticket. So that was my first job, being sent to Shanghai with a one-way ticket, one suitcase <laughs> and find find my way. For you landing in, uh, in Shanghai back in 2003, what was it like to get on the ground for the first time? You know, you talked about un the uncertainty before you you got there, but what is it like to actually be on the ground? It was a mix of feelings, uh, I remember. It was a mix of being really excited because I was living an adventure. I didn't know anyone who had lived that adventure before me. I didn't have a point of reference, so that was really exciting. But at the same time, it was super alienating. And I mean this as a person who had already lived by then in six or seven countries, but always in the West. So I looked more or less similar. Uh, the language, even though it was different, it was the Roman alphabet. You could understand at least the street signs. You could tell the taxi driver the name of uh, the airport or something and have some references. In China, there was zero. Like I ate things that I didn't want to eat. I ended up in places that I didn't want to go to <laughs> because I couldn't communicate properly. And so I think that feeling of being feeling alienated because you look different, you can't understand anything. You have absolutely no sense of reference in, in where you are was something that uh, really, for me, was the definition of step out of your comfort zone. There was nothing there that was comfortable for me. <laughs> and, and for you now, like, is that something in regards to how you live your entire life? Is, is that kind of owning that uncertainty, that uncomfortableness? Is that something that kind of draws your passion out and, and kind of energizes you? Oh, absolutely. And just for context, I would like to tell the audience that I was given 24 hours to accept or reject this podcast. It's not something that was planned. I didn't know the, <laughs> <laughs> the questions that, that were coming. So very often, yes, Craig, I go back to that moment of saying, wow, if I took a one-way ticket to go to China when I knew no one and nothing about China, I can do anything. And the more uncomfortable it is, the higher the chances of me saying yes. You tell me this is hard or you can't do this or this is uncomfortable. I'm happy. I'll do it. I'll, I'll yes, I'll take the, the chance. So I think it, it pretty much describes my attitude towards life. Like if you don't take a risk, you're not going to have like a big upside. That's really how I look at things. Mm. Love a bit of risk. So for you, you've worked in a number of different countries, you've lived in a number of different countries, but when it comes to leaders that you've worked for, what has stood out for you of those leaders that you really look up to and you're the one and you're like, wow, I really want to stay here. I just love working with this person. That's a fantastic question. And I think for me, the leaders that have really made me want to stay is the people who are more human 
is the people who knew my daughter's name, who knew that um, I had to go to Spain because someone in the family was sick, who really cared about the individual. I think uh, we can't underestimate the human element because at the end of the day, leaders are just people who are supposed to care about us and, and make us become a better version of, of ourselves. And if I think of the, the best leaders that I have had in my career, it was not necessarily the most strategic ones. It was not necessarily the most intelligent one. I think it was the ones who really listened, who actively listened, who really cared about the team, who really wanted to make sure that you were able to thrive. And whenever you had a moment of weakness, they helped you turn that into an opportunity. And these are the people that have really made a difference. And these are the leaders that later on became friends. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. If you stay friends with a leader long term, once you've left, then they've obviously made a, a huge impact on your life and, and built that beautiful connection with them. As you've gone through your career, how have you seen leadership evolve um, across the world? Obviously, there's been there seems to be a change happening, and you know we've had a few incidents around the world that are probably accelerating some aspects as well. But of the changes that we're seeing more from a global sense of leaders, what, is, what are the things that are standing out for you as like um, being big game changes in, in this world? Mm, I think, of course, a big uh, disruptor in, in leadership was uh, COVID and, uh, and the pandemic. And uh, one of the things it triggered is the digitalization of the workplace. So all of a sudden you had leaders that had to lead remotely and many had never done that before, but also leaders that had to manage through a lot of change. And I think what these put into evidence is that in order to be successful as a leader, you needed first to lead that change, but you needed to bring people along the journey. And I think that's where a lot of leaders got lost and got their teams lost. Because when we think of digitalization, very often we think of devices we need ipad we need a new crm we need all these things and we think of the technology and the biggest challenge to drive change is actually not the technology is really the people and bringing them on that journey of understanding why why can't we meet in person anymore why do i have to suddenly have everything digitalized when i used to have everything on my notebook why do we have to have sessions virtually when I'm a good salesperson, when I go and meet the clients in person? And so having all these, knowing how to deal with all these objections and making sure that the team gets on board is something that is critical as a leader more now than ever. So for me, the first point is really about change management and how to make it happen from an operation standpoint, but also from a human standpoint bringing the team together. And uh, the second one, I think, goes back to my point about a world that is more interconnected than ever. And it's about the diversity and being inclusive. And I think inclusive leadership is really the, the big umbrella. In, uh, in the leadership as we see it today, we have people that are so different in terms of background, in terms of language, in terms of personality, in terms of ability. And being a leader that is able to gather the team and get to hear from 100% of the voices, not from the majority, 
not from 99%, but from 100% and making sure that every voice is heard and is valued. That's really what leads to inclusion. And I think this is the second big pillar that I'm seeing in leadership is how to have these teams that are much more diverse, but also inclusive. And having a voice, uh, you mentioned there, I think is really important that everyone not only has a voice, but also feels comfortable and has the permission, like they feel like they have the permission to actually express their voice as well, which uh, I'm sure is changing the dynamics in quite a few countries, uh, companies around the world, uh, as people try and get used to this different way of rather than, here, I'll tell you, you do, to now okay, let's, what do we think about this? How is this going to work, et cetera, um, which I think is good. Now, I'm going to stay on this inclusive leadership a little bit here as well, because I think when a lot of people hear inclusion in the workplace, they tend to think more about, uh, you know, gender or even race and things like that. But inclusion, like especially the way you were talking about there from a voice point of view, how can leaders be more inclusive and approach it um, and not just think about it as the minorities, but thinking about how can everyone feel included? Mm, I think um, you have a really good point because we tend to think of diversity exactly as you said, is the racial element or or is the gender element? And I think it, it's much deeper than that. And it's understanding that we are different as individuals. You can't put me in the box of Spaniards or I can't put you in the box of, of Kiwis. It's really starting from the mindset that every individual is different and that we have to respect that individuality. So it goes way beyond just gender or race. There's everything that makes you an individual. So we already talked about you being a father, you having a, a background in, in triathlon, like all the things that make you, you, and allowing as a leader that this is part of the conversation. Like in previous jobs, and I think it was it was also part of the culture, I had this feeling that when I was going to work, I was almost a different Veronica. I had to be serious. I had to show a bit more of a type A personality, which is actually not really me. I had to uh, show portray myself with an executive presence because I was in a quite senior role where most people were men. And so I almost felt like I had to have this mask of what is expected for someone in that role versus now thinking, actually... I don't need you to mask. What is beautiful is that you can bring your true self to work. And I'm going to be learning from that precisely because you're not pretending to be like everybody mm. else. And I think when we truly have this mentality of, I want you to be who you are and to be your true self at work. And I'm humble to learn from you and, and know that your difference and my difference is what makes our strength together. I think that's really a mindset that helps with inclusion and take it much deeper than that first level of, I want to have 50% of women in the room. It's, it's much more than that. Yeah, very much so. I mean, if you're still focused on 50% women in the room, I think you're probably two decades behind uh, the rest of the world where it should be right now. Um, as do, do you really see that difference in, you know, you're working in the space now around um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, in your role there at Leaders for Good. Are you seeing people wanting to learn more about it or are they, or are you sensing that a lot of companies are already well on their way in regards to making positive change? Where do you feel society's at right now? 
I think it's um it's hard to say society as a whole because precisely being in the field it gives me like a very laser focus uh, perspective of each of the companies and the way that we do it in in our company is we have a maturity scale from one to five to see where different companies sit and what I would say is that precisely uh, as a society we don't have like a specific point where we are so some companies many companies i would say maybe the majority they still look at diversity equity and inclusion as a compliance item you tick the box you have to have your harassment training tick the box you need to have a unconscious bias training and these are often actually the topics that we see at that level and then as you start to go up the scale then you have companies that invest in dei for example or have a head of dei role that is something that I never uh, saw in any of the companies that I worked for previously. Then at the at the um, level five, which is the highest level, is the advocacy in society. So you're trying to advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion, not only internally, but also externally. So you might be hosting seminars, you might be partnering with social causes and, and things like these. So as a society, I think the good thing is that we are trending up, but I also want to highlight that very every company is very different because the journey that they've been through their maturity and and so on is is also quite different mm, yeah very much so and so what are some of the things that you're kind of seeing on a day-to-day basis where you know you're seeing a greater focus happening it may not be in diversity equity inclusion but you're seeing a greater focus happening inside companies in terms of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, it, it depends on, on the region, actually. For example, in, in North America, the big debate or the big focus is, is on, on racial because uh, there is definitely a reflection of the society, um, how to make it more inclusive, how to have the underrepresented groups in, uh, in organization at C-suite level and, and so on. I think in, in Asia, what's interesting is that there's a lot of managing the diversity of the region for example yeah. i sit in in hong kong uh you are in uh, in australia at the moment and the region is is extremely diverse like people in the west very often they look at asia as this one block and once you're here you're like wow we have like i don't know 14 or 16 markets depending on on how you look at asia and the cultural diversity the linguistic diversity is uh, is gigantic and a big focus for companies that work in Asia Pacific is how to tackle that cultural diversity. So to be very specific, language is a big one. Many of the teams in um, in Asia for whom English is not a first language really struggle when it comes to uh, speaking in public or Zoom meetings uh, or really keeping up with the pace of uh, leaders for whom English is a first language, like the Australians, for example. And that's a big focus that companies are trying to uh, tackle, like how to make sure that your manager from Japan uh, is as heard as the manager from Australia. And also there is an unconscious bias that I'm very aware of it, is that I tend to think that a native English speaker has a better idea than someone who, for whom English is not a first language because they cannot articulate it as well. And so for me, as a, as a non-native uh, English speaker, I put so much effort into trying to speak good English and trying to make sure that I articulate because I'm two steps behind, you know, and, and I'm aware of it. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that, especially for those companies that are 
are now starting to diversify the different cultures or countries that they're involved with, whether it's part of their team or whether it's the clients they're dealing with, is even though they may speak English, they forget that there's a there's a long processing time as you take information in in English, you translate it in your into your native tongue, then you've got to think through it and then try and come back in. As you say, you may not have all the words that the person speaking to you does. And so they don't, they don't realize the, um, the importance of slowing down the patience that you need to allow people to articulate effectively and ensure that you can actually really hear what they're saying. So you talked right at the beginning about the importance of active listening. And when it comes to English second languages, if you're an English speaking person or say you speak Spanish and you're talking to other people that Spanish may be a second language or third language, that importance of having patience and and pausing for longer and giving people time is so important. Mm, absolutely. It's really leveling the playing field. And sometimes it's small gestures. So small gestures for you that can have a big impact for someone else. For example, in, in with my teams in uh, particularly North Asia, uh, who really struggled more with English, for them, enabling them and, and allowing them to use the chat for asking questions and participating, it was such a relief because they would much rather say what they are thinking in written, which is often much better. The level of written English and reading English is usually much higher than the, the spoken one. And so these little things can really level the playing field for many people. Mm. And now that we're seeing a lot of work being done more online and meetings online, et cetera, as well, what are some of the things that leaders can do to ensure that they are connecting with people, that they they get to know people, that um, they're giving people that space when they're doing it through Zoom meetings or WebEx meetings or whatever it may be, some sort of video call? How can we? How can they adapt the way that they would have been communicating previously? Mm. So that's a, a great question. And I'm actually just finishing a module on inclusive meetings. So I've been really working on this. And a few things that really work is uh, before the meetings, sending the agenda and what you're going to talk about. And it sounds very simple, but for some people who maybe have some disability or have autism or for whom English is not a first language, knowing what you're going to talk about and having talking points or guiding questions can really help build that confidence because they're mentally preparing for you're going to talk about. So that's a small thing that you can do before the meeting. At the beginning of the meeting, we're always rushing. We're always going, you know, 100 miles an hour. And I think it's really important to protect that time for personal connection. I think it's just so nice when you start a meeting and someone shares something about them, their day. What did you do? I just dropped my kid at school. My dog is here. I just had these for breakfast. At uh, Speakers Corporate Institute, we do that very often. Like We do like a little icebreaker. And it's a, it's a wonderful way to connect with people that cannot be underestimated because also it sets the tone. If we start the meeting talking about the PNL line versus starting the meeting talking about how is the day in Hong Kong, you're setting the tone for people to be more open, to, to have fun while working, to build teamwork. So I think that setting the tone is something that leaders should always keep in mind because it's something that you can control. How are you going to set the tone for your meeting? So leader is up to you. Oh, beautiful. I like that approach. 
uh, we've talked a little bit about um, together we've had conversations before around intercultural competency and I think the term that I remember you using was cultural agility which I absolutely love as well uh, how is how is this going to play out um, as companies become more global uh, both in the clients and their team etc what do we need to be aware of in regards to cultural agility especially for someone that may not have been exposed to, to working with different cultures previously what are some things they need to be aware of i think going back to um inclusive leadership i think the principle of being inclusive apply to anything. It can apply to having a, a sports uh, event. It can apply to, to how you talk to people. So I think being, being very aware that is about the behaviors and the providing those tools for the leaders to be able to adapt. I think that's, that's really important. But more specifically, I think companies have an opportunity to be more open when it comes to mobility and um, global mobility. And what I mean by this, to give some specific examples, when I was working both at Apple and, and SL Order, very often the leadership model was that you would send someone from the US to come to Asia and tell the Asian people how the business is done. And then <laughs> that person is here for a couple of years as an expat, and that person goes, goes back. And I think this model has an opportunity to be reviewed. I think there's definitely value in having someone who comes from the headquarter and who brings that that legacy and that way of working. But there's also an opportunity to create more synergies. So having more opportunities for people to also go to different countries, to have these exchanges, to maybe have mentorship where you're learning from each other, because cultural agility is not something that you read about. It's something that you have to experiment. It's, uh, you know, when I was uh, in China, I had no idea how to um, use the chopsticks for the first time. Or when it was Chinese New Year, who do you give the red envelope with money inside with? I was giving envelopes right, right left and center, and, and it's not supposed to be that way. And uh, <laughs> so I think trying to create these opportunities for people to learn about culture, it's as basic as it is. Because my experience is that for you to accept things that are different, you have to be exposed to them. For me to to really understand more about uh, the the experience of a gay person, or for me to understand more about someone for whom uh, English is not a second language, you have to understand a little bit more of their lived experiences. And so, back to the question, I think companies have an opportunity to create those opportunities. Mm, beautiful. We we hear, I think you know, Malcolm Gladwell did some famous work, or or sorry, published. Um, some work around 10,000 hours, you know, and the importance of you know, putting 10,000 hours into something. We cut off and talk about 10,000 experiences, but listening to that, I really believe that 10,000 exposures is a, a phenomenal way to grow as a human being or as a leader. Um, you've been able to make sure that those exposures are extremely diverse um, if you want to be a high performer. I think the the less exposures you have, the less experiments you make, it doesn't matter how many hours you put in, you're quite limited on who are, who you are as a human being and what you can actually potentially achieve. Um, so I love that 10,000 exposures. That's a new, a new um, <laughs> video that I'll be doing shortly. Uh, so thank you for the inspiration there. Over the past, uh, so you actually you've you've brushed on a little bit around Estelada and also Apple and two two companies that are very much focused on retail, but um, two different products that they're selling. Well, can you explain in your 
view the difference between the two companies in regards to culture and way of doing things? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The way that um, I would describe each of the companies, so I'm going to start with uh, Apple. My experience with Apple is that it's a company that uh, it's very flat in the sense that uh, when you go to a store, for example, everyone is wearing the the blue shirt. So you don't know who is the manager. You don't know who is uh, uh, the uh, the genius in the genius bar. You don't know who is the salesperson. And I think it's done on purpose. I think it's really this idea that uh, we're all a team. Uh, we're all you know, working, working together. And I think that's something that's, that's really beautiful when, uh, when I think of the way that, uh, that Apple works, I had the opportunity to also go to the campus in uh, Cupertino. And uh, there was uh, just a, a fun story on, on the stage, there was one guy who went to the stage, unassuming with some jeans and a polo, and then he started speaking, I recognized the voice. And I'm like, Oh, wow, this is Tim Cook. So <laughs> the uh, the culture of uh, of Apple is very much flat, I think, and that's something that uh, I really loved about about Apple. When it comes to to Estee Lauder, for me, it was much more uh, New York, Wall Street based type of company, like because the headquarters is uh, is in New York, and the company has been there for uh, a few decades. It, it really felt like the rush of, of New York. So I really felt that it was pretty much the New York style of doing things. One uh, one of the uh, phrases that they use very often is, uh, we are building the plane as we fly it or something like that, which is they're always testing and always trying new things, always uh, experimenting. So the, the pace was very fast because I think it reflects also where the headquarter uh, of the company is. So I think very, very different cultures, but I definitely learned a lot from, from both of them. And I think the, the combination for me was uh, really like the, the biggest gain to see how different companies are and how, how differently you can do things. And for each each of those two companies, what was probably the biggest lesson you have taken away um, that is helping you now in the things that you do as a freelancer? So it goes back to the specific role that um, that I had. So for me, Apple was all about uh, teamwork, and uh, it really helped me understand the difference between a manager and a leader. When I went into Apple in my my late 20s, I was all about getting the results and KPIs. And and when I was at Apple, I did not hear the word KPI once because it's not the way that uh, they look at the business. It's all about the customer experience. It's all about the employee engagement. And uh, so for me, it uh, it really opened uh, this, this window of what leadership really is about. And it was only the moment that I had a team that was really engaged, where everyone felt that uh, they had a purpose, they were fulfilled, like I was really trying to get the best out of them. That's really when we were able to get those results. Uh, so, so for me, that uh, uh, clicking, it clicked, becoming becoming a leader. It An SL all order for me, it was uh, during the digital transformation piece. So it was exactly when COVID happened. And for me, it was it was very challenging because I wasn't prepared. I don't think anyone really was for what was coming ahead in terms of my role was uh, the head of retail for Asia Pacific. And uh, we had uh, around almost a thousand point of sales across the region, 70 or 80% of them were closed uh, at some point with, uh, 
with the pandemic, and I'm talking about cosmetics where women go, women and men and, and uh, whoever uh, goes to the stores and they want to try the product, they want to touch it, they want to talk to someone. And all of a sudden this was shut. And the brick and mortar stores represented more than 80% of the business. So for me, having that uh, agility to adapt, to look at different ways of doing the business, also resilience, because you were talking to teams that uh, were having a lot of mental issues, as, as we all did during the pandemic. So how to make sure that you're running, not running, transforming a business and giving support <laughs> to people during that process, that was really challenging. So I think as a leader, I had to have a lot of resilience. And at the same time, it also showed me or taught me that it was important to be vulnerable. And uh, up to that point, I was always trying to come up as uh, the, the strong woman and the strong leader who's been in China and does all these things. And it was actually fine to say, actually, I'm struggling too. This is really hard for me. I haven't done this before. I, I need you. I need my team. We're, we're learning together. And so it also taught me to be vulnerable and let people know that it's okay, that I don't have everything figured out. And that's why I hire the best people to help me. <laughs> I think that's the best leaders out there. They know to hire people better than themselves and things that, um, and, and different things that they can or can't do. So it's beautiful. I like that approach. Um, so really interesting to hear that. Like you've got two young daughters and, you know, to me, leadership and parenting is, is pretty much the same, different context, but the, what you do is, is very similar. What are your two daughters? What have they taught you the most so far? Patience. <laughs> I think absolutely patience because um, you have to really take the time to slow down and explain the things and uh, really slow down to understand that uh, the world is a really complex place for, for someone who is a little person who is trying to figure things out. So I think being patient is definitely a big lesson. And the other one that they have taught me is that we need to slow down to appreciate the small things. By being with my children, I'm able to go back to being a child myself. And so they will tell me things that make me laugh and uh, things that, that just make me appreciate the small things. Like, you know, the typical example of mom, look at that cloud. That cloud looks like a dragon. I don't have time to look at clouds, but now I have to make the time because I have daughters who appreciate that clouds look like dragons. And uh, I think it's, it's beautiful to remind you that the little moments are just in front of you. And especially when you, are, you have little kids, you, you have to appreciate it and, and, and honor them. Mm, that's good. I think uh, after six days of being a parent, <laughs> I'm highly qualified. Um, I think the two things that my daughter has taught me so far is that life is simple. Even though the world is complex, life is actually very, very simple. And so I think that's been really good to see. And secondly, my daughter always raises her hand once she's finished having a feed <laughs> or when she's ready for something. She just hand goes up. So I think she's already ready to be polite and, and ask questions and be patient <laughs> until she's been acknowledged. <laughs> this is a lot of fun. Now, I mentioned earlier that you about freelancing and so... You're going from a, a long 18-year career in the corporate world, working for some of the biggest brands on the planet to now being in a position where you freelance and you're working for a number of different things as well as building your personal brand. 
tell me what is what has it been like to explore this space and and you know overcome a few hurdles along the way and what's working for you Absolutely. And so to give a little bit of backstory, I never planned for this. <laughs> so I'd like to point that out because um, I did find my, myself in a, in a very strange situation unplanned for where I was in, a, in Australia, locked out of my country, Hong Kong, because of COVID. So I went on holidays only with my two daughters and I found myself in a new country, didn't have a network, didn't have a job, uh, didn't really have anything to to get started and and originally I was applying for corporate jobs so I applied for the the big corporate companies and and so on and I didn't have any success and at the beginning I used to tell people no you know I I don't have a network here uh, I'm new so I was making up all these excuses on on why I was not being um, hired and then one day I really asked myself so back to parenthood what is the the story that I want to tell my daughters when they grow up do I want to tell them that my story of excuses of why I was not finding a job or do I want to do something about it? And, and of course, I knew the answer. And so I started to, to change my mindset. And instead of saying, oh, recruiters don't see the value I, I, I can provide, I changed the narrative to I have to show the value. If they don't see it, it's on me. It's not on them. And uh, same with network. I used to say, oh, I don't have a network in Australia. Well, that's on me. No one is going to come knock on my door. And so that's really the, the story on how I started um, my whole journey on freelancing and, and social media. So I didn't really know where to get started, but I knew that I needed two things. I needed recruiters or companies or potential clients to see my value. And I needed to create a, a network because I didn't have any specifically in Australia. Very quickly, I realized that these, these two things go hand in hand. The moment you start to create value and to create content for yourself, you start to build a network because people see it and people like it. Some people don't, but uh, they want to connect with you. They want to be a, a part of, of what you're doing. And so that's how my, my journey started. And uh, I didn't really know, to be honest, I didn't have a vision of where it was going. I just wanted to, to get started somewhere because I was coming from a place of rejection and I wanted to turn that rejection into redirection, right? As, uh, mm -hmm. as they say. And so I started to create content. And for me, one of my big passion is diversity and inclusion. So I started to write a lot of uh, content on LinkedIn about that topic. And then slowly I started to really find my voice and, and find my message on uh, on LinkedIn. Next thing, I was invited to speak at a podcast because uh, one of the um, uh, creators, a podcast host, uh, saw what I was doing and, and they liked it. And then I started to put my hand up for a lot of different things. For podcasts, I started to write to newspapers and uh, I had a lot of rejection at the beginning, but that rejection was really a catalyst for the uh, yes and for the uh, uh, the opportunities that that opened afterwards so so yeah it was really a, a journey that started with changing the narrative from people don't see my value to i want to create value being in charge of of your own journey and looking at rejection as opportunity and and what is it that can i do better so that next time it's a yes instead of a no you got to be faithful with the small and the big will come and so you know, that just ability to put things out there, I think is so important. And you talk about doing different things here. Do you want to give a bit, just a bit of an overview of some of the things that you are doing at the moment? You talked about LinkedIn, obviously, and, and being on Medium, but what other things are you doing uh, maybe to drive income directly along the way? 
Sure. So in terms of uh, income, my biggest uh, job that I have is uh, I work for a DEI uh, consultant company in Australia called Leaders for Good. I absolutely love working with them. And uh, with them, I do strategy work about DEI for organizations, uh, all the way down to specific uh, trainings and workshops that go for anything from inclusive language to inclusive meetings, inclusive leadership, and so on. So that's really the, the company where I have like my main income. Now I'm starting to work as a public speaker and a facilitator for Speakers Corporate Institute, where actually Craig is our CEO. <laughs> so I'm talking to my boss. <laughs> so, so that's a, a second one, which, uh, which is fantastic. And then on the side, I'm having like some uh, some other side gigs that I didn't know uh, were even going to happen. But uh, one of my passions, as as you mentioned, is uh, is writing. And so I started writing articles on Medium, which is like a platform for uh, freelance writers and where you do get paid uh, based on, on reading time. So today I published my article number 256 in five months. So wow. <laughs> I've been doing a, a lot of a lot of content. And the last thing that uh, happened really through LinkedIn, I did not look for this, is uh, several companies, I don't know if it's three or four, they have contacted me to be one of their retail experts. And mm. so what that means is that you're an expert on demand. So if they have a client that wants to talk, for example, my last one was about the uh, beauty industry in uh, Indonesia and Thailand, they check in their database, who is one of their experts that fits better that uh, that topic? And then you usually have like one hour phone call with uh, with a customer and you get paid per hour. So again, another gig, another freelance opportunity that I didn't even know existed. And that came to me through a LinkedIn. And now I partner with three of these companies on, um, on a monthly basis. Mm, beautiful. And yeah, so it's really, really exciting there. And I think for everyone out there, there are multiple avenues to have a career and to really, really enjoy what you do and be able to diversify uh, not only your revenue streams, but also diversify the things that you do in the day. But you do need to be quite organized and have good time management if you are working in multiple spaces. So, and I'm sure you do really well at that. Now, we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Okay. So the last time I did something for the first time was actually last week. And it's related to LinkedIn, by the way. I had my first LinkedIn live with uh, another content creator called Petra. I had never done anything like that. I'm uh, petrified by going live because if something goes wrong, you can't, I can't be unseen. So, <laughs> so that's something that, uh, that really petrified me a bit. Uh, but I love doing it. It was, uh, it was a great way to connect with the audience. And in fact, we actually did the second session this morning. So it was not uh, the first time anymore. Uh, so yeah, that was a, a first time. <laughs> I love it. Very, very good. Going live is a lot of fun. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Oh, wow. I have a lot of questions that I would like to solve. Some serious, some fun. I'll just uh, throw a couple of in there. I would love to know if we're going to uh, touch Mars uh, during my time. <laughs> I think that's a good one. Uh, having my, my husband is a pilot, so I would love to know if uh, uh, a robot is going to take his job at some point. I would love to know that so that I can prepare with all these, <laughs> these AI that, uh, that is happening. 
Uh, so yeah, I do have a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Who is an inspiring great leader, uh, either is currently alive or may have passed, that you look up to or have taken great inspiration from? So in terms of, of leaders, uh, personally, I'd like to talk about two. One is, is my mom, because I do get a lot of inspiration from her. She became a widow at the age of, of 42, which is uh, the age that I am now. And um, with the 600 euros in her pocket, she opened a, a restaurant that is now very successful. And uh, she did it all by herself without having any degree, without really having any any support. And uh, and so for me, it, it always reminds me of the, the, the importance of hard work. And I think that has really shaped who I am. So that's someone who is, of course, close to my heart, is, is my mom. <laughs> and um, the second person that I, I have a lot of uh, admiration for is Michelle Obama. I read uh, her uh, biography a couple of months ago, and, and I didn't know much more of her other than what you usually see on, uh, on public uh, channels and so on. And what I love about her is that when she became uh, the, uh, the first lady, she had an opportunity of shaping that role into what she wanted to do because there's not really a playbook for being uh, the uh, the first lady. And I think she took that opportunity to to do good, to do good for the world, to um to really fight for the causes that were meaningful for her, um, racial causes, uh, obesity, especially in, amongst amongst children. Really set a, a great example for for her two daughters. So so as a woman and as a mother, I really love how she used that opportunity to to do good, you know, greater good for the world. Ah, beautiful. Uh, I think her book's becoming. Is that correct? Is that the name becoming. of it? Becoming. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. And I love how you speak about your mum as well. I'd love to go. I'd love to meet your mum one day. Maybe we can arrange that. Uh, it's been a great conversation and I'm sure you know, people would love to learn more about you and what you do. So how can people um, connect with you? What was the best way for people to connect with you and learn more about what you do? Absolutely. So if you Google my name, actually, if you Google Veronica Lorca Smith, Yorka with a double L, Smith um, with a hyphen. You find everything that I've done pretty much. Uh, and uh, just to give you like some specific pointers, I have my website with my same name. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. And um, also on Medium where I write a lot of articles. So I think these are the, uh, the main places. By the way, I'm writing my first book which is a manuscript, it's still not a book. It has to become a book. So I'm in the process of editing and making it <laughs> really good. So once it's out, hopefully you will see me on the shelves digitally or real shelves. Oh, yeah. And what's it? What's it? Do, do we know? Can we share the name of the book yet? Or is that um, something that we'll have to wait to, for a big surprise the, in the next few months? So I, I can't share it because I, I haven't finalized the name yet, mm -hmm. but it's definitely about my journey around the world. So having lived in, uh, in nine different countries and the different uh, experiences, but also how to overcome challenges that come with, uh, with those experiences and with diversity. Oh, I love it. Can't wait to read it. And maybe I'll get a sneak uh, preview before it hits the shelves. Absolutely. So, Veronica, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I, I I love your energy. I love your passion, your zest for life. And it's just so open. I was talking to someone yesterday around the people that are photogenic. And the people that are generally photogenic don't, um, sorry, aren't in a situation where they're worried about or care about what other people think or say. And when they're in that relaxed persona, they're generally very, very photogenic. And I just feel so relaxed being around you. And I can see why... 
uh, people warm to you and from um, from being an inclusive leader you create that space and that permission for people to uh, be able to open up and be themselves in front of you which is a, a beautiful attribute that i can see in you i love uh how you're talking about you know your children and the way that they see the world and for them uh they just they just want to be together like that's more important than whether they live in one country or another or another one and i think so many parents are concerned about oh what happens if i take my kids out of this community and you know are they going to struggle if i put them in another one well i think it's you know giving them that space to you know be themselves and explore the world and and be open to opportunities and know that nothing is going to be easy along the way but you're going to have a lot of fun trying um and having that exposure which you mentioned as well uh, i love what you're doing in uh in you know being a freelancer and being able to express your ideas writing 250 <laughs> 250 articles in five months that's what three a day pretty much you're a machine uh, the, the, uh, it was it was two so whatever you do the math because i did the math it was uh it was two <laughs> two a day that is impressive. I, I do a video every uh, weekday for this year, which is kind of exciting. But yeah, writing articles, that that takes some time. So well done. Uh, and so for everyone out there, go and check those articles out. But Veronica, it's been an absolute pleasure. Once again, I, I'm looking forward to seeing your growth at Speakers Institute Corporate um, as you, you know learn, go through the spaces and then uh, it won't be long before you're in front of clients and um, been able to make a, a big difference around this world and share your insights, wisdom, and experience, experiences from all the exposure you have had in different parts of the world and, and you know, really being open and observing what's going on. So thank you very much for being a wonderful guest today. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I'm super humbled to be here and to be able to, to share my story to hopefully motivate others as well. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders Movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast, where the ordinary don't belong.